0: Two short weeks ago, this would have been the second service of two packed services we here had here at Lifeway, and I'm thinking how quickly things could change. Like John Lennon wrote, some forever, not for better. And there's possibly, and I'm pretty safe to say there's a lot of fear out there. Some of our people, some of you watching online, you're experiencing fear, and uh all of us are experiencing uncertainty. How long is this going to last? Is it two weeks? Is it longer? God dropped a scripture in my heart the other day about what's going on in our culture and what I want to share with you today. Not the message, but kind of like the preamble. And it's all the way back an obscure little prophecy in the Old Testament called Habakkuk. It's uh, three little chapters. Israel experienced similar times. They were uh, under siege and being uh, taken over by the Chaldeans, and there was a lot of uncertainty. They were holed up in their homes for fear. Um, There were shortages of basic life staples, kind of like what we're feeling today. Here's what he ended that book with, this wonderful song of praise. Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 70 to 19. Though the cherry trees don't blossom, the strawberries don't ripen, though the apples are worn worm-eaten and the wheat fields are stunted, though the sheep pens are sheepless and the cattle barns are empty. If we can just stop there for a second. That was a, an ancient, primitive, agrarian culture. If they were living today, they would say, I go to the grocery store and the shelf is bare when I'm reaching for an essential thing I need. My paychecks have stopped coming in. I don't know how I am going to make the budget next month. Now we can relate. But then he went on to say, I'm singing joyful praise to God. I'm turning cartwheels of joy to my Savior God. And here's the reason why he said, counting on God's rule to prevail, I take heart and gain strength. I run like a deer. I feel like I'm king of the mountain. Yeah, some of us are feeling hopeless today, or not hopeless, but helpless. We're feeling a little bit helpless, and that feeling of helplessness may not be a bad thing, especially when it drives you to the throne room of grace. But hopelessness is never a good thing for a child of God. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame but wholly lean on Jesus' name. When darkness veils His lovely face, I rest on His unchanging grace. Through every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. His oath, His covenant, His blood support me in the whelming flood. And though all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. That's where I am at today. I'm not trying to make light of your fears and your uncertainty because I feel some of that myself. But I remind myself daily by getting into his presence where my hope comes from and where my anchor exists. And I feel like all things are going to work together for good because we love God and we're called according to his purpose. We want you to let us know if we can help you. I know we're disconnected from literal presence and, and social interaction, but we are obviously able to connect uh, digitally like we are this morning. Shoot us an email, uh, call the church officers, any way that we can help you. And uh, and I also want you to reach out to one another. I mean, if we can reach out and go, go online for a service We can find ways to connect with one another on social media and through phone calls and text messages. Let's stay connected. I want to pray for you right now before we start the message. Would you bow with me? And uh, whether you're in your living room, watching on your TV, or in your bedroom, watching on your tablet or kitchen, uh, wherever the case might be, would you just, uh, as a sign of faith, reach your hand towards the screen that you're watching right now? And I want to pray with you. Father, I bless the people that are viewing this service online right now. And I pray that you would cast out all our fear with your perfect love right now, that you would remind us every day as we look to you that our anchor still holds beyond the veil and that we will survive and we will not only survive, but thrive. May your calming presence enter every home where this broadcast is reaching right now. And we ask it in Jesus name. Amen. And amen. So I want to talk to you going to continue our series on spiritual warfare and our series called fight. And, uh, I want to ask you this question. Have you ever watched a prize fighter fight on TV? You know, like a championship bout. I, uh, I know if, uh, Nick is watching, he did some, uh, Nick Aragon, he did some boxing and he has us over to his house to watch some mo- boxing matches. And, uh, I used to, uh, I'm an old guy, so I remember the Gillette Friday night fights are on the air. Friday nights in the late 50s, ABC broadcasted them. I watched them with my dad. One of the few things I remember doing with my dad, which is another story. And uh, one of the things I learned by watching that with him is that he taught me what one of the most uh, grievous mistakes that a boxer can make, and that is dropping his guard, dropping his guard his guard. On November the 7th, 2009, there was a championship heavyweight bout being fought between the reigning champion. His name was Nikolai the Beast from the East of. He was seven feet tall and weighed 325 pounds. He was being challenged by David the Haymaker Hay, who was six foot three and weighed 200 pounds. So think about nine inches shorter and 125 pounds later. Nobody thought that David had a chance. It was literally a David versus Goliath moment. But you know what? David, the haymaker hay, won the bout with a split decision because Nikolai made that grievous mistake. He dropped his guard. In fact, I have a picture on the screen that you can look at. That shows you the precise moment when he began to drop his guard. You see it? and I mean, guys love that picture. I mean, there's sweat and spit flying everywhere, you know, and it's like, but uh, guys, l- ladies, I know you don't understand how we enjoy stuff like that, but, but that's how, just how we're wired, you know. But he, he dropped his guard. Listen, it's a dumb mistake, but many boxers make it. And Christians, I want to bring it into our realm, we must be careful not to drop our guard and fall prey to the enemy and his strategies. There are basically three camps that exist, in my opinion, that, uh, about the whole issue of spiritual warfare and the Bible, what it has to say about it. The first one i want to call the camp of the obsessed. You know, they, they are preoccupied with it. I mean, with an unreasonable feeling and fear, they're demon conscious, if you will and and they believe all the stuff they see on movies the supernatural realm and all they read in books and the devil is everywhere which by the way he's not and he can do anything which by the way he can't and he's been ascribed with divine attributes that belong only with our heavenly father our God in heaven they think he is omnipresent. He is everywhere at the same time and he's not. They believe he is omnipotent. He can do everything and he can't. And that he is omniscient. That means that he knows everything and he doesn't. And I just want you to know those that are in that camp, you are camped in the wrong camp. When we first started our ministry back in the in 1980, about 2-3 years in, there was a lady came to church and wanted to know if she could come over and visit my wife at the parsonage and Uh, We found out during that visit that she had some very strange views on this subject. She asked my wife as soon as she came in after my wife poured her a cup of coffee. She says, I want to know, she said to my wife, do you spiritually house clean? And she said, well, I wasn't sure I'd answer that because I am spiritual and I clean my house. So I guess that, but uh, she said, no, here's what I mean. So she went over, I cast out the water glass demon I cast out the doily demon, and all of a sudden, my wife—I wasn't there, by the way—but I would imagine her eyes got big, and she's thinking, "How can we cut this meeting short?" You know, that's the obsessed. But there's a second camp, and that's the oblivious. <laughs> I mean, I mean, those are the people that pay no mind to it. They're unconscious and aware of it. And undoubtedly, in fact, I know it from firsthand experience, this series has undoubtedly made some of our Lifeway family members a little uncomfortable. They would rather remain oblivious considering that ignorance just might be bliss when it comes to this, kind of like the proverbial ostrich that hides its face in the sand. You know, one of the greatest weapons the Satan uses against us is our ignorance. He wants us to take him lightly or not at all to ignore him. But then there's a third camp, and this is the one I belong in, and I belong to. I want to encourage you to join me in this camp, and that's the camp of the observant. You're not obsessed. You're not oblivious. You're observant. It simply means that you are quick to notice and perceive. You're living a balanced life. You don't go around demon conscious, worry about devils on a water glass, and you're not uh, ascribing to the enemy divine attributes that do not belong to him, but you are well aware of the fact that the enemy is real and he has dangerous weapons and he executes a real and deadly strategy, and we have to be what Peter said in 1 Peter 5 and 8. Be well balanced and always alert because your enemy, the devil, roams around incessantly like a roaring lion walking about and looking for its prey to devour and what paul said in second corinthians chapter 2 verse 11 he said make sure you stay on the path of forgiveness so that you would not be exploited by the adversary satan for we know his clever schemes the entire new testament Is presented, in my opinion, in in a warfare motif. From Matthew to Revelation, the language of warfare can be found. I mean, Jesus said in John 10 and 10, I'm just picking, nitpicking just verses here or there, but Jesus said, the thief, referring to Satan, he comes to steal, to kill, and destroy. Ephesians 6, verses 11 to 18, the apostle Paul said to the church at Ephesus, he said, you need to put on the whole armor of God that you might be able to stand against the wiles of the devil and having done all, to stand. And then he goes on to talk about the, the uh, Christian's armor and how we can prepare ourselves to wage battle against our enemy. Paul said to the young and busy pastor at Ephesus in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 12, he simply said, fight the good fight of the faith. And he said in the second letter, chapter 2, verse 3, he said, endure suffering like a good soldier. But perhaps the most enlightening passage of all regarding the subject for me is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 to 5. Here's what we find. For although we live in the natural realm, we don't wage a military campaign employing human weapons, using manipulation to achieve our aims. Instead, our spiritual weapons are energized with divine power to effectively dismantle the defenses behind which people hide. We can demolish every deceptive fantasy that opposes God and break through every arrogant attitude that is raised up in defiance of the true knowledge of God. We capture, like prisoners of war, every thought and insist that it bow in obedience to the anointed one. Ladies and gentlemen, to to claim that the Bible does not claim or does not present warnings and content about spiritual warfare, is kind of like saying the Betty Crocker cookbook does not contain recipes. The Bible teaches us that there is one problem, sin. The Bible teaches there is one villain, Satan. The The Bible teaches there is just one hero. His name is Jesus. And the Bible teaches us that that there is one purpose to live for, and that's the glory of God. So this morning, I'm going to do two things with you. I want to share a couple of observations about spiritual warfare that I've accumulated along my 45-year journey. And then I want to end with three strategies that I would like to suggest for all of us for combating the enemy's attacks. Observation number one, our enemy is ruthless, cunning, and dangerous. Just, just settle it out for that for a moment. Settle on that. The thief doesn't come but for to steal, kill, and destroy. That sounds like dangerous stuff. Satan is not some kind of stupid imp with no common sense. Back in the 50s, you know, when dinosaurs roamed the earth, when I was growing up as a boy, and, and uh, there was uh, not a whole lot of things to occupy our time with, or certainly not much TV on except Saturday morning cartoons, and, and uh, w- uh, we read a lot of comic books. And of course, I read all the superhero ones, you know. I read Superman, Batman, uh, you know, Green Lantern, The Flash, uh, you know, Incredible Hulk, all those. But there was one that came out in 1957 that I read a little bit, bit while I was out. It was called uh it Hot Stuff, the Little Devil and His Friends. Now I want you to picture this. It's it's a little baby demon, right? And he's plump and he's. Well, he's kind of all red, and he's got horns on his head. And he's got a tail with a point on the end, and he's got a pitchfork, and he can belch fire anytime he wants. And he's wearing a diaper, which, by the way, the comic book writer wanted us to know was made of asbestos. Crazy, right? But he was ornery, and he, you know, like I am sometimes. My wife can tell you that. But he, uh, but he. <laughs> I don't know if you heard that, but my wife's here and she amen that. She, that's usually the loudest amen I ever get from her when I'm talking about my wonderiness. But, uh, but, but sometimes you go around doing good deeds. And it's amazing how culture can form an opinion about our arch foe that can either cause us to be overly panicky or to let down our guard. Our enemy has been developing strategies for thousands of years. He's called the anointed cherub. He's called the God of this world. And that doesn't sound like little hot stuff to me. As such, he is patient. Oh yeah, he's patient. He will lay the foundations of failure in your life that may take years to materialize. I want to give you several, uh, I want to give you one of several ways that that happened in my life. So In 1962, I'm 12, my brother's 10, our little sister was just born, was only six weeks old. My mother had enough with my uh, father's infidelity and lack of responsibility, and she said, I had enough, I'm leaving him. So they split up. That was the summer of 1962. In the fall, September, I went back to school, I started seventh grade. I was the only student in my seventh grade class who was not living with both biological parents. Hey. It was 1962. It was a different world back then. Those seeds of insecurity, uncertainty started to get sown in my life. I started to feel like and consider myself an outlier, the the odd man out. Those seeds germinated over time and began to bear fruit. For instance, when I was around 15 years old and a lot of the chaos, we were living in Florida for about a year. And uh, I joined a gang, if you want to call it that. A group of juvenile delinquents are a little bit older than me, and they accepted me, and they brought me into their little family. They all had juvie prison tats, you know, tattoos. And so I wanted to look like them, so I tattooed myself. A little help from my brother, because I am right-handed, and and, uh, the ones on my right hand and my four right fingers, uh, my brother did. The rest I did. And uh, still the outlier. Still the odd man out. I dropped out of high school about a year later at the age of 16. I always would keep my hands in my pocket, you know, at some point in my life because I didn't want anybody to see those silly tattoos. Ten years after those tattoos were put on and, you know, about the age of 25, I accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as my personal Savior. Our family became a Christian family. I was born again, but some of the baggage of the old life made its way into my new life. Five years later, I am, at the age of 29, I'm pastoring my first church. I threw myself into the community, and uh, and as a result, uh, no one more surprised than me that the local ministerium elected me to be president of the ministerium my first year of my first pastorate. One time, again, I keep my hands in my pocket and, you know, and Walk around like this and may, hoping no one sees, you know, the long sleeves can cover the one on my arm, right? But the ones on my fingers. By the way, you guys that have tattoos, you gals that have tattoos, that, that's not a statement about what you've done with your bodies. I'm just saying culturally back then it was a whole different world. Now great-grandmas get tattoos, you know what I'm saying? That's fine. It's fine with me. You know, I'm just ahead of the curve, you know what I'm saying? It's like, you know, so, uh, so one time the ministerium was having a breakfast. And I'm sitting down at the table waiting for uh, our breakfast to be served. All the I don't know, it was about 20, 25 ministers from the town were there. Who sits down right next to me? Then the Reverend Dr. Lawrence R. Chotner, the president of the Presbyterian Church. I mean, the pastor of the Presbyterian Church. And I'm thinking to myself, how am I going to eat my breakfast with my hands in my pocket? I figured out the only way I could do that was literally eat like a horse. And I wasn't going to do that. I mean, I do have some pride. Still the odd man out, still the outlier. So I reached with my left hand to pick up my fork, and immediately Dr. Chartner sees my fingers, grabs my hand, and loudly says, what is that on your hand? Everybody in the room stopped their conversations to look at me. I cannot, I mean, I'm just retelling that story for you about 40 years later still makes my blood curdle. still the outlier, still the odd man out. But I want you to know, several year, a few years later, I came to a place where my identity and value became totally vested in my heavenly father's love for me. And from that day forward, I know who I am. I know whose I am. I know where I'm going. I'm not better than anyone, but I'm certainly not lesser than anyone. The cross has a ground that is level. There are no high points or low points. I don't hide my hands anymore. If someone does ask me, what's that on your finger? I basically say, well, they're life scars. We all have them. Some of us have them where they can be seen with the naked eye. But the enemy patiently sowed seeds that limited me for nearly 20 years. Didn't destroy me. And I was still, you know, I found Jesus. I went into the ministry. I can tell you that. My attitude about myself hindered the level of success I was making in the kingdom of God. That's why sometimes when we are dealing with our surface problems, it's kind of like dealing with weeds in your yard. You know, uh, I used to see some of the older people in our neighborhood when I was growing up, and that was before they used a lot of these uh, weed applications for the lawn, you know, and the only thing they had back then was not, you know, safe to use. Of course, now they're saying some of the stuff we're using now is not safe. But anyway, they they would just clip the, they would have a a device where they would stand up and they were able to clip the weeds. And, And for a couple of days, the lawn looked good, but the weeds would come back bigger and better than ever because they didn't get to the root that was causing the weed to grow. So keep that in mind. Your adversary is ruthless and he is patient. And sometimes we got to dig around and find the root cause of some of the problems that we're battling with on in our lives. He's not only He's not only patient, he's disciplined. He remains focused and stays on mission. He's not easily distracted. He's relentless, vigilant, doggedly determined. The kingdom of darkness, by the way, is not on quarantine. They're not locked down. They're not unemployed. They're not laid off. Uh, they are more active than ever. But I'm not wanting to leave you fearful. 1 John 4 and 4, you know what it says? You are of God, little children. You have overcome them because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Not only is he patient and disciplined, but he's also deadly. He's not messing around. Remember, he comes to steal, kill, and destroy. We will be rise to remember that physical and biological death are not the only deaths that can occur to us. Marriages can die. Relationships can die. Hope can die. Joy can die. Trust can die. And I want you to know the enemy is after all those things that make your life secure. I'm not trying to frighten you. I'm just encouraging you to come over to the camp of the observant. Yeah. Yeah. Observation number 2, our enemy doesn't care who he gets who hurt, who gets hurt in his efforts to achieve his true objective. There is no Geneva convention convention for spiritual warfare. There are no war crime tribunals. If you're waiting for a fair fight, you're going to be waiting for a very very long time. Satan doesn't care who he hurts to achieve his demonic purposes. He'll go after you, go after your spouse, your children, your parents, your siblings, your friends, your relationships, your pastor. Nothing is off limits. He's out to hurt God, but God is unhurtable, right? He's God. So what does he do? The next best thing, he tries to hurt that which God loves. See, everybody in this room knows this, especially those of us that are married and have children. You can throw a lot of stuff at me, do a lot of things to me, say a lot of things about me, and sometimes, most of the time it'll roll off my back like a water on a duck, you know, but you mess with Nancy, <laughs> we've got a problem. You mess with my two children, my five granddaughters, and my four great-grandchildren, you know what I'm saying? Some of my closest friends, all bets are off. I will willingly lay aside my sanctification for five minutes to do what comes naturally. I mean, we make movies about it, right? I mean, uh, Liam Neeson in the series about Taken, you know, uh, and then there's uh, years before that, Mel Gibson did one called Ransom. And those of us that are as old as dirt remember Death Wish, one, two, three, four, seven, nine, twenty, you know, where Charles Bronson was in that. And, and you know the common theme with all, all those movies? Those guys were kind of like gentle and meek and mild and could take a lot of stuff. But once you mess with anybody in their family, their wife or their daughter, yeah, I'm, I'm going to end you. Observation number three. Our strategy must include both defensive and offensive elements. It's one thing to stand your ground and defend yourself when the enemy comes after you and those you love. By the way, that's a very good place to start if you're not engaging this at all. But it's a whole other thing to go after the enemy. We've got to go after them. Bill Lipman Preached an awesome message last week on t- pulling down strongholds. And he reminded us that David did not wait for the Jebusites to come out of the city of Jerusalem or open up the gates so that they could conquer the city. No, David found a way to penetrate the stronghold, the, 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 the fortification of the enemy, and bring that enemy down, destroy it from within. Here's what Jesus said to Peter in Matthew chapter 16, verses 18 and 19. And I say unto you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. All right, that's kind of a stationary thing. But then it said, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So in those verses, we see an offensive strategy, and we see a defensive strategy. Gates are stationary. They refer to strongholds, walled cities, if you will, of the enemy. We are to take it to the enemy not just sit there and kind of hunker down and hide and hope the enemy doesn't figure out where we live. Now, let's take the remaining few minutes we have together and talk about some strategies. There's a lot of strategies that are valid and biblical and successful. I'm just going to deal with three that work best for me. I don't don't ignore or neglect the others. I just say, these are the three I focus on, all right? So, you know, Bill Lippman last week in his message, you know, what he told told us about uh, pulling down strongholds, he said, turn a deaf ear to negative voices, and then he said, open your eyes to new choices. And that's what I want to do right here. I want to open your eyes to new choices in spiritual warfare. Here it is. Number one, focus on presence more than power. This is how I fight my battles. A couple weeks ago, Jimmy was recounting the story of David and Goliath. And nobody tells a story here at Lifeway like Jimmy and you know. I mean, we watch with bated breath and listen with bated breath and watch on the edge of our seat because not only is he a good storyteller and a solid biblical preacher, he's been known to break out on the moonwalk once in a while, you know. What's not to like about that? But remind, I want to remind you of just a couple of verses that he covered, not to rehash the whole thing. But in second, 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 45 and verse 47, When David runs out to me, Goliath, David shouted in reply, You come to me with sword, spear, and javelin. I come to you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. And everyone will know that the Lord does not need weapons to rescue his people. It is his battle, not ours. The Lord will give you to us. The prophet Zechariah said, this is what the word of the Lord is to Zerubbabel in chapter 4, verse 6. It's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. You know, some of the celebrated warfare strategies that I've seen, I'm a, I started out in the Pentecostal church, and so I'm a charismatic evangelical Christian in the Lutheran church. I guess I'm a Methodist something like that. <laughs> But some of these warfare strategies are rooted in sinful, misplaced pride. Bring it on, devil. You don't scare me. Gosh, talk about a fool's errand. I had a post on Facebook the other day about this COVID-19 stuff, you know, and, and one of my friends on my Facebook uh, page uh, posted this. I'm going to quote it uh, deliberately without naming the person in the event that they might be listening. And if they are... I didn't, you got to love me. God said so. It says here, I beat influenza. I also beat salmonella a few weeks before. Bring it on, COVID-19. Wow, I read that. and Do I walk around in terror and dread about COVID-19? No, but I'm very mindful. It's one way that the enemy can attack my life. And I'm not going to let down my guard. I'm not going to be a Nikolai the beast from the east value of and let down my guard and let a little peeps, pipsqueak knock me out. You know what James 4.16 says? You brag because you are arrogant. All such bragging is evil. Now, I'm going to ask for a show of hands, and I know I'm not going to get any unless you're just being silly with me. How many of you think that you are mightier than the Archangel Michael? I mean, you got Gabriel and Michael, and they're kind of like head honchos in the angelic realm. But in the last book, the book of, uh, right before the book of Revelation, this one chapter book called Jude, right? So it's Jude and Revelation. In in verse 9, there's this really mysterious verse there that, you know, you can really dig around and say, man, I'm not sure what that's about, but it's clear what it says. It says, yet Michael, one of the mightiest of the angels, when he was arguing with Satan about Moses' body, did not dare to accuse even Satan or jeer at him, but simply said, the Lord rebuke you. Don't beat your chest in pride when you're engaging in spiritual warfare. Get into God's presence in humility. In the late f- 50s, I was facing a bully in a neighborhood. His name was John DeLong. He had a mouth as big as his six-foot frame. He was a braggart, and he liked to pick on little guys like me and my brother, you know. And uh, he was a couple years older than me. He lived on Jackson Street like we did. And, and one day... He was facing me down, and he was terrorizing me. You ever been terrorized by a bully, where they're threatening and saying, what, "What are you going to do about it? I'm going to knock you out." And I was so terrified by his rant and his threats that I was literally frozen in fear. I mean, I was kind of thinking, you know, with my little legs and his big ones, I might be able to outrun him, you know. Uh, but I, I just could not move, and you know, the strength sapped, you know, was sapped out of my body. I did, and he's going, oh, blah, blah, blah. And, and then out of nowhere, he stops. His eyes get big. His jaw drops. His face turns pale. He spins around on his heels and starts running. Now, silly me, I'm thinking, that's what I'm talking about. Finally, somebody realizes how bad I am. <laughs> Until I turned around to only realize at that moment that my father walked up behind me during this rant that he had overheard outside and just two feet behind me just stand there and stood there and stared down my bully. Lifeway, when we're in the presence of our heavenly dad, when he shows up, when we take refuge in him, bullies melt, bullies quit and they run for cover. Get into and stay into God's presence. He'll fight for you. This is how I fight my battles. Thank you for whoever, I guess, Joanna, you picked that song for today. Thank you so much for that. Uh, if you didn't sing it, I would. Oh. <laughs> no. Coronavirus is paranoia permeating our world. Is it wrong to take precautions and use common sense to avoid getting or spreading the disease? Absolutely not. We were asking permission to give hugs or handshakes this morning, right? We, we're all, we're, we're all uh, sensitive to the boundaries that people are setting according to their level of fear and concern about the disease. But you know what? It's not wrong to do that, but this is how I fight my battles. Psalm 91, 9 to 11, when we live our lives within the shadow of God most high, our secret hiding place, we will always be shielded from harm. How then could evil prevail against us or disease infect us? God sends angels with special orders to protect you wherever you go, defending you from all harm. This is how we fight our battles. Israel is facing peril and danger from a pursuing army from Egypt after they were told they could go to the promised land. But Pharaoh had a change of heart and sent An army of war chariots after them, and they're facing the Red Sea in the front, mountains to the left, uh, a, a desert to the right, and no retreat in the back, and they were overwhelmed. But here's what Moses said to them under the anointing of God in Exodus 14 and 13. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. The Lord will fight for you. You shall see your enemies no more. Focus on presence more than power, and your enemies will be vanquished. Number two, focus on surrender more than strategies. In James chapter 4, verse 7, we read, So then surrender to God, stand up to the devil and resist him, and he will turn and run away from you, just like John DeLong did back, you know, 62 years ago. Jimmy artfully reminded us of the story in the book of Acts chapter 19 where there were seven sons of a rabbi whose name was Sceva. And they were watching Paul lay hands on people and cast out demons, perform miracles, and they looked at each other and said, he's nobody special, we can do that. So they came upon this demon-possessed man, and they went up to him and they simply said, in the name of the Jesus that Paul preaches, we command you to leave him. And the demon had an interesting comeback. You know, guys... I know Jesus, uh, I know Paul, who are you? And with that, that one man jumped on th- seven brothers, beat them to a bloody pulp, and the Bible was clear to tell us they fled naked and bloodied and wounded. You know why? Because they resisted the devil without first surrendering to God. Matthew 17, the man brought his son to Jesus who had a demon that afflicted him with epilepsy. He initially brought him to the disciples, but they were not able to help him. And they came to Jesus. Jesus said, oh, man, how, much, how long do I have to put up with you? And, and, uh, and, and he said to the boy, be, be delivered, and he was delivered. And then the disciples said, hey, why were we unsuccessful? We you remember what he said in verse 21? But this kind of demon is cast out only through prayer and fasting. What is prayer if it's not surrender? What is fasting if it's not surrender? Ladies and gentlemen, there will come a time in your spiritual walk and mine when we will encounter opposition that requires more than our cleverness and our arrogance and our bravado. And instead of beating our chests in pride, let's surrender in humility. The best strategy in the time of battle is to get on your knees and complete surrender to the one whose name is above all names, our conquering king, Jesus Christ, the anointed one. And then the third thing, focus on worship more than warfare. Now, please remember, I'm not saying don't focus on warfare. I'm just saying focus on worship more than warfare. I'm not, it's not either or. It's both and. Fall of the city of Jericho in chapter six is interesting in it. Moses is dead. Joshua is elevated to the, the leader of Israel. It's time to cross the Jordan River and occupy the Promised Land. The first city they come into contact with is Jericho, highly Jericho, highly fortified with a thirty-foot wall that was wide enough on the top for two chariots to run side by side. Impenetrable. God says, "I have a strategy for you," and they're ready to, with their military weapons and stuff. Said, "No, that's not what it's about." I want you to march around the city walls once a day, blowing the trumpets of the priests for six days. On the seventh day, I want you to march around the walls of the city seven times, and at the end of the seventh lap, I want you to blow the horns and shout. They did exactly that, and when the shout went up, the walls came down. They lifted God up, and the walls came down. Focus on worship more than warfare. I want to link two scriptures together as we wrap this up this morning and close. We're we're moving into the the invitation stage here. I was praying and meditating. A lot of times I wake up in the middle of the night and I'm not one to turn the TV on because I can figure something out more meaningful and productive to do. And so I'll just lay there and meditate, think about my message. And um, these two scriptures that I had never heretofore linked together became a part of a strategy. Psalm 68, 1. Let God arise, let his enemies be scattered. And then a quote from Jesus in John 12, 32. And if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. When we focus on worship more than warfare, when we realize that worship is warfare... Two things can happen simultaneously. The enemies of God can be scattered. And those who need Jesus will be drawn to him. And for you that are listening online this morning, even you in the auditorium, the few that we have here, it'd be hard for you to argue against the fact that we have lifted up Jesus this morning. I love worshiping here at Lifeway. I love being a part of the team. I'm just so privileged and honored. But I just love the way we worship. We have worshiped him and lifted him up with the preaching of the word. I haven't preached to you my own ideas and theories. I've given you the word of God. As a result of that fact, I realize there's some of you that are listening this morning, they're feeling drawn. As we lifted up God so the enemies will be scattered and we've lifted up Jesus so he can draw you. Can I encourage you, please, Don't resist what you're feeling in your room right now. I know you're scared. I know you're uncertain about the future. All this isolation is not good for anybody, but especially you. Don't resist. Surrender. If you're ready to accept Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior or Rededicate your life to Him. I believe someone told me that they're on that screen that you're watching from there's that raise your hand cl- uh, icon that you can click or something. Let us know you're going to do that. Let us know you're going to be praying this prayer with us right now. Let's bow and pray. All you folks here in the auditorium, would you repeat this after me? Would you repeat this after me? Those of you that are watching online. My Heavenly Father, I come to you in Jesus' name, just as I am, broken and stained with sin. I need a Savior, and I believe that's you. Come into my life. Cleanse me from all unrighteousness. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. And empower me to live a life that honors you for the rest of my days. Right now, I confess that Jesus Christ is my Lord. And I believe in my heart that he has risen from the dead. And according to your word, that never lies. Romans 10, 9 and 10. According to your word, I am saved, I am forgiven, and I have been given a new life.